If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. And if we haven't met before, my name is Brad Cheney. I'm one of the pastors here at All Saints. We have, uh, what, been four weeks into the new sermon series in the book of Acts. And today we're talking on a topic that's, you know, preached on with a, a lot of frequency, both here and in other churches. That is the topic of Christian community and the church. Uh, Loneliness in America is a very big deal, and people have been talking about it for decades now. You may remember the book put out in the year 2000, Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone. He notes that there aren't many bowling leagues anymore. People go bowling by themselves rather than part as a league. Um, And he says that's indicative of Americans becoming more isolated and more uh, individualistic. Well, another a woman by the name of Abby Foreman updated it fairly recently. She says, we're no longer bowling alone. We're a society of people scrolling alone, which, I mean, really hits the nail on the head, doesn't it? There's a study that was released this week uh, on the de- depression rates of United States uh, teenagers, focused especially on teen boys. From the year 2009 to the year 2019, the last decade, what percent increase has there been in, uh, in depression among teenage boys in the United States of America? The answer is 74%. When they dive into those numbers, what's hap- what has changed in the, ho- in the homes, in American homes from 2009, 2019? They looked at the economic data. It's not that the families are struggling that much more economically. They looked at the homework loads for students. It's definitely not that they're getting more and more homework. We're at an all-time low for homework. In 2009, only about half of American teens used social media. In 2019, over 85% did. In 2009, most American teens still did not have a smartphone. In 2019, about 95% do. In addition, there are other studies that indicate that younger Americans on a whole are much more lonely than older Americans. Millennials, seven out of every, this is pre-COVID, by the way, but seven out of every 10 millennials would describe themselves as lonely. Eight out of 10 Gen Xers would describe themselves as, as lonely. And this was all pre-COVID. What do you think has happened to American loneliness you know, post-COVID? And Americans are reporting skyrocketing rates of mental illness. There's an, another study, okay, probably one too many for an intro to a sermon, but another study that came out this week on the institution of marriage, you know, that thing that Americans used to enter into. If you, for an American who was born in the year 1997, what is the likelihood that they will have, have been married at least one time by the year 2037, or at the age of 40, what percent, if marriage rates and trends continue the way they're going, how many are going to have been married at the age of 40? And the answer is 40%, which to me of all of them is the most staggering. And if you look at uh, the different ethnic groups in the United States, only 23% of African Americans will have been married at least once if they were born in 1997 by the age of 40. One author writes this, he says that in a healthy country, an individual could find fellowship and common purpose 
through the institutions of civil society, be it churches, civic clubs, sports leagues, and the like. We might add to that the institution of marriage. But Americans have been dropping out of institutions quite steadily since the late 1960s, and trust in basic institutions, be it political, media, religious, legal, medical, and so forth, is at, we talked about this already, it's at dramatic lows. And the younger generation, the age 40 and below, they are the least religiously affiliated generation in the history of our country. Even in the last 10 years, the number of people who went from saying that they were of no religious affiliation to, um, or, or were of, a, who were basically, yeah, who, sorry, no, they have no religious affiliation. I think it went up from, from um, below 10%. It's now 24% of Americans now say that they have no religious affiliation. So all that, maybe I'm beating a dead horse, all that to say loneliness in our society is an enormous pro- problem. What is God's solution As Christians, we believe, we truly believe that God's solution to the fragmentation and the loneliness of this world is the Holy Catholic Church. We believe that it is the church. And what we need, we need the body of Christ to become strong again. For God's spirit to be poured out upon um, our churches, that our communities would be places of grace and truth and love. Um, We we need the church to be the church in order to, to face what is going to be an utter crisis that we're going to have, national crisis on our hands. And what the church can be is modeled for us here in Acts 2, beginning of verse 42. Let's read it. This follows right on the heels of, a, of Peter's Pentecost sermon. And we hear about the new Christian community, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer or literally, the prayers. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. One day, Peter and John were going to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, a, crippled, a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave him his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly, the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him, Walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to be sitting begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. Yes, thanks be to God. 
Five marks of the church are described in the passage. They're pretty easy to point out. I'll, I'll make some comments uh, on each of them here at the beginning and then um, try to tie it together. Number one, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They came together day by day to listen to not, not just the insights of, of every Tom, Dick, and Harry, you know, tell me what you think about this, tell me what you think about this. They came together to listen to the apostles who would, you know, explain to them how Jesus was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures. No doubt they would talk to them about all the things Jesus had told them and, and spoken to them during the three years that they spent with him as his disciples. Um, and they would have undoubtedly in the apostles' teaching learned about you know, how to live Christianly. They, I'm sure the apostles explained the significance of the cross and, and forgiveness and the significance of the resurrection and so forth. And any healthy church is going to do the same thing. I don't know if you consider this, but the New Testament that we have in our Bibles really consists of only two parts. It's the Gospels and it's the Apostles' teaching. Because the, the number one criteria to determine whether or not a letter or a book was added to the New Testament canon was simply, you know, what's the connection to this letter and uh, to the Apostles and the Apostles' teaching? So when we read our New Testament, that's what we're doing. The Gospels and the Apostles' teaching. Uh, I can only imagine what it was like to be there and to hear the Christian message being spoken about by these guys for the very first time. I mean, think if we could go back in a time machine, it had to be so exhilarating hearing, hearing them speak and being all together for the very first time. You'll notice also that they did their teaching openly in the temple courts which means not only they were, were speaking to their, their group, but they were opening it up to the public so that the public could hear the marvels of this teaching too. Secondly, they devoted themselves to the koinonia. That's the Greek word that Luke uses. The koinonia, the fellowship. Aristotle, he also used koinonia in some of his writings. Koinonia for Aristotle referred to communities where, quote, people share projects, goods, and talent with each other. By all accounts, this was a, a diverse koinonia. It was made up initially of Jews of a variety of cultural, ethnic, social, and linguistic backgrounds. To this uh, diversity, it, it only increased as the, the message of the, Christ, of the Christian faith, the gospel, went out into the rest of the Roman Empire. As, as it went to new lands, new peoples, all joined into the koinonia, the fellowship. And we note that it was a koinonia of, of the poor and the rich, of the slave and the free. And it's a koinonia of, of, of love and generosity, Thirdly, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, which likely refers to the Lord's Supper. Most likely, it says they celebrated this in homes. There would have been a, a, a communal meal that they shared together, and at the end of the meal, they would have celebrated the Eucharist, uh, the, the Lord's Supper. Uh, we've talked about this quite a, few, quite a bit in the church, but you know how revolutionary this was. There was no religion in the world that took all of the various stratas of society and set them together at a common table. Those of us who enjoy watching British period pieces, say Downton Abbey, you, you see how the, the English manor house table was totally stratified between 
the, 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 the upper and the, the lower, right? I, you can imagine in Down Abbey, the servants sitting down with the Lord of the manor and sharing a meal together because that's, because that's not how meals worked then. And it was certainly not the way that we, meals worked in the first century. That, that you would take this ragtag group of disparate people, uh, both ethnic and cultural and socioeconomic and, and we might say political because what, you've got a, a zealot in Jesus' 12 disciples and you have a tax collector. I mean, guys on the total opposite ends of the spectrum and you sit them t- together at a common table. It was, it was thoroughly revolutionary. And then fourth, the prayers. Uh, they devoted themselves, as devout Jews did, to regular times of prayer throughout the day. A devout Jew would pray in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening. If they were in the city of Jerusalem, they would do so in the temple courts. And that's exactly what we see these Christians doing. Going to the temple courts at these prescribed days, times of the day, in order to pray. And to pray Christian prayers in the temple courts. And we know that you know, prayer is vital whenever Christians meet together. Be it on Sunday morning for worship or in a small group or for meals in homes. We try to get a prayer meeting going in our church and have had pretty limited success in doing so. But, but whenever there are signs of spiritual life, it will always be accompanied by people devoting themselves to the prayers. Fifthly and finally, radical generosity. The key word, I think, or phrase in the passage is they gave to anyone who had need. In the first century, there were actually other Jewish groups. Uh, I have in mind the group of Jews who lived down by the Dead Sea. They're called the Qumran community. The, the Dead Sea Scrolls are what they produced. To, be ca- to become part of the Jewish Qumran community in the first century, you would have to you would have to give up all of your personal belongings and make it community property. It was, in, in essence, it was an enforced socialism. In contrast, you see the Christian community chooses voluntarily to sell property and possessions to meet the needs of their members. And we know it wasn't a perfect arrangement. Acts chapter 5, the episode with Ananias and Sapphira, we'll see that it's not perfect, but what's very clear in Acts 2 and it is later clear in Acts 4. They did a great job of taking care of one another. And they did so voluntarily. They did so because of love. Pastor John Ortberg tells a story of being in an, Amer- uh, an African-American church on a Sunday morning. On a very hot Sunday morning. It was over 90 degrees. And the air conditioning unit had gone out in the building. Uh, so how long does a, an African-American church service last when there's no a- a- AC and it's 95? The answer is... Over three hours. (laughs) That's not the most uh, impressive part of the service. And he went on to say the preaching wasn't the most impressive part because he said I was the preacher. And he said the singing wasn't the most impressive part even though they, they sang with such gusto and animation. When he looked out over the congregation, he saw that it was a relatively poor church. They didn't have a lot in the way of material uh, possessions. Yet when it came time to take up the offering for the church, instead of doing as we used to do, pass plates and you, you know, anonymously put your, your gift into the offering plate, the people would stream, they would stream to the front of the church. They would come and they would bring their offering at the front of the church and they would do it dancing. They would dance their way 
to the front of the church. He said, and they danced. The look on their face was an expression of defiant joy as they danced their way to the front in order to give their offering to support the ministry of the church and, you know, to help support each other. I thought, I wonder if something similar was, was on the faces of these disciples in Acts 2. Look with me at verse 47, the results of a church like this. They were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And Luke tells us it, it was a growing church. Um, there were conversions. People were being saved. And it is very, it's true. If we were more like this church, we would be, we would see the same thing. I mean, we could say if all the chur- churches in the Treasure Valley were more like the church as described ideally here in Acts 2, we would be growing. Um, but that's true. We, we also have to, we have to recognize that this was a unique situation. It was the result of a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. These were the apostles, for crying out loud. These were, you know, God's anointed apostles. And it was a unique moment in, in the history of the church. When everybody is thinking the right way about life, and when everybody is feeling the great grace of God, and when God is doing powerful works of miracles and showing all of his glory, Um, yeah, the church is going to definitely grow. Um, And it's something we should aspire to. I make, I I don't hesitate for a second to say, this is the type of church that all churches should aspire to. I say just with a caveat, we should be careful not to idealize this description because there's no greater threat to real community than the idealization of perfect community. And on earth, there's no perfect community. There is no perfect church. If I were to summarize my takeaway from Acts 2.42 through what we read, 3.10, it is simply this. The, the church, when she is at her best, the church feels like a family. I mean, the church is a family. When she's at her best, she feels like a family. I mean, when you become part of a church, you, you should know that I've got people here who have got my back. Like, they're going to take care of me. You lose your job because of COVID. You should know that we, we will have your back. We will take care of you. you. You lose your stuff. Well, fine. Here's my stuff. You can have it. Um, we're there to take care of each other. Ray Cortez, who I quote relatively often, said something that hit me this week. He said, he said only, in, only in North America would we have a picture of church where people are like, I don't want to be part of a small group. I don't, I don't want to have relationships with people. I just want to go to church, get concert quality music for half the service, have somebody get up to preach who doesn't put me to sleep and perhaps inspires me once in a while. And then I want to hustle to my car and say, well, I did church. He says, that's not church. That's never been church. I mean, church, church is, it's corporate and it's institutional and it's liturgical but it's also a commitment of relationships with other people. In other words, it's a family. And to say that, and I don't know, I really, truly, I don't know if or, or Cortese in that statement is accurately describing anybody at all saints. I think it is an attitude that pervades much of the American church, but 
But to think that we could do church and church not be a family is, I I just don't recognize it on the pages of uh, scripture. You know one of the ways that the early church acted like a family? In the ancient world, when a woman wanted to abort her child, she normally would not do so with the child in her womb. She would give birth to that child. And then she or the husband, uh, when it was at night and dark, and the tide was out to sea, they would take the child down to the shore, leave it there. When the tide comes in, the child goes out. Or... uh, You could take your child to the forest and you leave it in the forest and whether the child dies because of exposure to the cold or or dies because of uh, wild animals, at least least the blood is not on your own hands. Do you know what the early Christians did? They knew what time the babies would be set down by the waterside. They started walking the shores. They started walking the shores of the sea. They started walking along the edges of the forest. They would go down to pick up the babies because they wanted these children to be part of their family. And while it's not recorded for us in the book of Acts, it is recorded unmistakably in the pages of church history. One of the ways the church grew is they they took everybody else's unwanted and they made them part of family. Wouldn't it be great if, if that characterized the American church? Christianity is about, it is about being a part of a family. It is about opening your home to other members of the family, opening your life to other members of the family, sharing your possessions liberally, sharing your table, being in relationships with other Christians. And I, I use this phrase earlier, um, at our best, in our best moments, because I think that's what we really have to, to focus on and aspire to. All of us have stories of how the church has failed us. All of us have horror stories of how other Christians have failed us. But in our best moments, in our best moments, our conversations run quickly to good and beautiful things and not to complaining and gossip. In our best moments, Christians bear their souls to each other, not being suspicious of what the other people will do if if they really know who I am. In our best moments, We're not afraid to disclose our weaknesses because we know we are secure in the love of Christ. We extend grace to one another and not condemnation. We bear one another's burdens rather than piling up unrealistic expectations on each other. In our best moments, in our best moments, we share our very lives with one another. And when there is a need, we meet it. We share the roofs of our heads, the blankets in our closets, the food in our pantries, the money in our pocketbooks. And as I said before, we do so voluntarily uh, because it is the voluntary compulsion of love that we do all these things. And when we do it, friends, it's the picture of what we're going to experience in heaven. It really is the picture of heavenly community that by God's grace, one day, we will get to experience in heaven. And, and that's what we should at least long and strive to, to try and make here. Amen? Amen? The church is Jesus' answer to the loneliness and fragmentation of the world. Do you believe that? Yes. Do you, you, 
Amen, Phil. <laughs> I mean, and, and it's to all of us, do we really believe that? That the church is, is Jesus' answer to this? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is so good on these topics, talks about how when we first come into a church, there's often the first feeling we have is everybody here is great. This place is great. These people are great. Phase one, he says. Phase two, you get in and you get the letdown. Everybody here is not great. (laughs) And he says, if people manage to get through the second period, they come to the third phase, that of realism and true commitment. They no longer see other members of the community as perfect saints or complete devils, but as people, each with a mixture of good and bad, of darkness and light. For the community is neither heaven nor hell, but planted firmly on the earth, and they are are ready to walk in it and with it. They accept the community and the other members as they are, and they are confident that together they can grow towards something more beautiful. Oh, I love that phrase. And they're confident that together they can grow towards something more beautiful. What could be more beautiful than a happy, holy um, family? What could be more beautiful than a growing family? That's my prayer for all saints, is that all saints would, would grow and, and the, the people would come into all saints and they would really feel like it's a family. It's a family that I can be welcomed into. Everyone, all the basic desires of our hearts is the need to, to belong and be somewhere, to have somewhere where we finally feel like we belong, to have a home where we can connect in, to have a homely house. That's my last uh, illustration and conclusion. Do you remember Elrond's house on, uh, located in, in Rivendell? So it, it's, Rivendell is this valley to the east of the Shire, and to the east of the Barrow Downs. It is in the shadow of the Misty Mountains. And depending on which direction you approach it, it's either the first homely house you get to or the last homely house you get to. If you're headed out from the Shire into mission in the rest of the world, it's the first homely house. And if you're headed back from mission, from, uh, I you know, the, the wilds of Mordor and beyond, it's the first homely house on your return, Bilbo and Gandalf went there in spite of Thorin's objections because we know dwarves don't like elves, but they went there and they were pre- prepared for their mission. And this is how uh, Tolkien describes it, the house of Elrond. He says, the house of Elrond was a refuge for the weary, a refuge for the oppressed, and a treasury of good counsel and wise lore. <laughs> A refuge for the weary and the oppressed and a treasury of good counsel and wise lore. And when they returned from their mission, they rested there and Bilbo, he ultimately retired there. But uh, I think that's the type of place we want the church to be. The, the homely house on the edge of the mission. Really the great, a great metaphor for um, what we should aspire to. Amen.